And the dry season always records the highest sales of shea butter. Have you thought of its health and cosmetic benefits compared to skin bleaching creams? Shea butter. You can find it in most moisturizers or chocolate. Most shea butter originally comes from the shea nuts on trees in West Africa. And business is booming. According to the Global Shea Alliance, shea exports from African countries have increased 600% in the last 20 years or so. Theoretically, this would be great news for shea nut collectors, the grand majority of whom are rural women. But women oftentimes find themselves at the bottom of the shea butter supply chain. Many sell their nuts or butter to middlemen who sell them elsewhere. And most shea exports from Africa are just the raw nuts, which are much cheaper than the higher value shea products. But that is changing. For Foreign Policy, I'm Rena Nainan. On today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, we're going to Nigeria. They have the largest supply of shea nuts in the world. 2.2 million women in the country work as shea nut collectors. A new program there is helping women shea nut producers get much more money. Nelly Kalu brings us this story. Shea butter production is not just an industry in Nigeria, but an age-old culture for women like Olasumbo Adeleke. My story about shea started from childhood. Uh, my mom had a great liking for natural things. So when we were young, she was always just using shea butter, coconut oil. Olasumbo is from Oyo State, southwest Nigeria. That area is arid and dry the perfect climate for shea trees, which grow wild throughout the Sahel region of Africa. Making the butter is very labor-intensive. Women would wake up at 4 a.m. and start the long walk to wild forest to pick up the falling shea fruits. They wake up very early in the morning to go and pick up the shea fruits so that they can pick the green ones. Of course, there are insects there, there are snakes there, though they defy all those odds. Traditionally, shea butter production is exclusively female, passed down from mothers to daughters generations on. It requires considerable amounts of water and heat, taking several days to produce through several stages. Sometimes with children strapped on their backs, women balance heavy baskets loaded with shea nuts on their heads for the long trek back to their home, where the edible shea fruits are the pulped, boiled, grinded, kneaded, and then boiled again before the butter can be extracted. In Olasumba's family, the practice of making the butter ended early as her mother died when she was still a child. It wasn't until years later she became a mother herself that she became reacquainted with the product. When I got married and um, I gave birth to my first child, I have a neighbor and she just gifted me with shea butter and I just got connected. Wow, shea butter all these years. I was so, so, so happy. So I started using shea butter for myself, for my baby. People do ask me what I use for my skin because I go skin tone. Olasumba started buying more and more shea butter. She even decided to start selling some to others as a business. But she became frustrated that the quality of the product was inconsistent. So I send some money to the person that's sending the shea butter to me. Sometimes we have good quality, sometimes we have 
not so good quality. Sometimes we have very bad quality. So I now felt, why are we having this inconsistent quality? At this point of her life, Olasumba was living in Lagos. But she made the six-hour trip back to her home state in Oyo to meet some of the shea butter producers directly and saw firsthand why there were so many variations in quality. So what I found out when I went to the grassroots community was that, you know, when the women, when they go to the farm to pick the shea fruits, because they want to earn as much money as possible, they now pick both the fresh fruits and the ones that have been eaten by rodents, the decayed ones, they just pack everything together, the processes and anything goes. Olasumba decided that she wanted to help, not just to get more consistent shea butter, but to help the women as well. And uh, we'll try to look for funds, but because we are for profit, we couldn't get any funding for that. Realizing that these needs of the local women will be impossible to meet as a small business, she decided she wanted to get involved and created an organization dedicated to improving the quality of locally made shea butter and increase the earnings of the women in the trade. So that's how we came about the initiative for gender empowerment and creativity. She began attending seminars and training programs to learn how shea butter is manufactured for industrial supply. She also visited these communities, researching on the quality of shea butter. Once she formed the NGO in 2017, Olasumbo and her team at Initiative for Gender Empowerment and Creativity, IGEC, sprung into action. The first step was educating women on best practices. We started with the training of the women. So we now tell them when we are processing share, pick good quality share fruits, then packaging, storage. These are the things that we really need to address. A year after starting her IGEC, Olasumbo had a chance encounter at a conference. I think in 2018, 2019, one of the officials of Coca-Cola was there. So she was now like talking about what they are doing in women empowerment and everything. And I said, if you are doing something within the women empowerment, all your programs are usually in the urban areas. What about the women at the grassroots community? They are also women too. And they need our support. And this product is a product that has been needed and is being used worldwide. Why don't you support them? Olasumbo proved to be persuasive and decided to dream big. What if her IGEC built a facility that serves as an all-encompassing she business hub where buyers, exporters, wholesalers can meet with producers directly? After that conversation with Coca-Cola, she applied for and received a grant. The grant that IGEC has received is known as Climate Smart Share Processing Facility Grant. Amaka Onyemelukwe is the Director of Public Affairs, Communications and Sustainability for Coca-Cola Nigeria. This grant was awarded by the Coca-Cola Foundation to support build a standard facility that will enable every woman in today's community of Oyo State to have access to a facility that would help improve their yield from their share butter business. The plant opened about a year ago. It's a factory, but not anything huge. It's a one-level gray building situated off a dirt road. The building has a few different sections. There's an administrative office and a reception hall where the women have group meetings and meet with future buyers. 
There's also a storage area for the she nuts. Along the main floor of the factory are rooms set up for different stages of the shea production. They are boilers, grinders, millers, toasting and kneading machines. Women use these stainless steel equipments and power hoses for supplying fresh water. The plant boasts its own water treatment facility, which has had benefits beyond the factory. The whole community of today is benefiting. Olasumbo says all these improvements have made making shea butter much easier and has resulted in a much purer product. It's good quality shea butter because it's stainless steel machines. People do ask, but why stainless steel machine? In the share industry, we have um, three major markets. We have the cosmetic markets, the pharmaceutical markets, and the food markets. It's estimated that by 2025, the global shea butter market will be worth close to $3 billion. In some high-end boutiques, one jar of shea butter can fetch as much as $50. Shea butter they were producing before can only go for cosmetic industry. But with this facility now, using the stainless steel machine and water treatment plants, it has a bigger market. The factory also holds a daycare center, a dining area, and finished goods stores where the women can sell their butter after processing. The money made from the sale of the shea butter produced there goes directly into the pockets of the women producers. The objective of this project is to empower the women of today community to help them to be financially included and to improve employment opportunities to the people of today community. It is a project that is very dear to our heart and we pride ourselves to closing the gender gap in the society. Olasumbo helps them form cooperatives so they can sell their products in larger quantities, which enable them to access larger markets, negotiate for better deals and provide a safety net to individual producers. When they came on board, we were not like, okay, if we are going to do anything meaningful, it's either you join a cooperative or form yourself into groups, like a group of maybe six or 10. But if you are in a cooperative, even if you are in this post, others can easily fill in the gap. So, while the factory is an important place to make the shea butter, it also serves as an important meeting space for women to discuss plans for their next production run. These cooperatives are making a big difference in the lives of these women and help them expand into new markets without having to pay off an exploitative middleman, people who buy the butter from individual producers and then mark up the price when they distribute the products to larger retailers. Completely eliminates the middleman. In fact, what we're even looking at now is to key into the supply chain of the multinationals or cosmetic industry. I spoke to some of the women who use the facility about the new cooperative groups. They all agree that since the facility opened, their product has improved and so has their earnings. One woman, Mrs. Iyabo says she's been in the shea butter business for 20 years, and nowadays her product is more desirable than ever. I'm part of a cooperative society that was formed when the factory started. We met at the end of the month, and members are given soft loans to trade when we need it. The factory is very important to our community, and the lady who brought the factory has played an important role in our lives. I have been praying for her. 
when we don't understand certain things about the business, we approach her so she can explain it to us. As well as things are going, Olasumba herself admits there's plenty of room for improvement. Some of the women complain about how the dirt road to the factory is hard to drive on when it rains, or that sometimes there are not enough machines to go around. But for now, Olasumba says her biggest challenge is convincing more women to shed their old habits. It's a new factory. We only just built it last year. If you want to change, like a 50-year-old, 100-year-old woman saying it won't happen overnight, it's going to take a while. But Olasumba believes change is possible because she already sees positive results. And Coca-Cola's Onyemelukwe agrees. She sees the factory in Oyo State as a model for the rest of the country. We've seen this project as one that we could replicate in other areas. And one thing also is that at the end of the day, we limit the heavy urban migration that is putting a lot of strain to the urbanization happening in Nigeria. Because today, the rural women in today's community can be financially empowered even directly into their communities. And they are able to be financially free to, to support their families and in turn, building a sustainable community. And for us, that is the fulfillment and the impact that comes from this kind of project that we are deeply proud of. The facility continues to empower more women year after year. For the hidden economics of remarkable women, I'm Nelly Carlin. This project has so much going for it. Cooperatives, savings groups, manufacturing. How can we replicate this kind of program? especially without the Coca-Colas of the world. An expert from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation weighs in after the break. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainan. Before the break, we heard about a transformative program helping rural women shea nut producers earn more money. We wanted to talk to an expert not only about the shea nut industry, but ultimately how to get rural women more money, particularly in Africa. I was happy to talk to Sibyl Shidiak, a senior program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She focuses on women's economic empowerment initiatives in Africa. It's worth mentioning that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a supporter of our podcast. Here's my conversation with Sibyl Shidiak about women shaynut producers and financial inclusion in general. We just heard about a group doing a number of different things to help women earn more money in the shaynut market. This includes helping form cooperatives, getting them access to a processing plan. I want to start with those cooperatives. It sounds like these co-ops could really help the women do a number of things. One, buy and sell in bulk together, also save money, but also lend to each other. Why is that so important, Sibiu? 
I think we have to remember that for the most part, African societies function as collectives. So women live in communities and support each other. They form social cohesion. They form bonds in which they manage their day-to-day lives, which doesn't exclude their livelihoods, how they generate income and how they manage their household finances and the children and, and their household dynamics. So these cooperatives are just a reflection of what women do and have been doing for centuries across the world, um, and specifically in Africa. Savings groups, for the most part, are voluntary. Women decide who the other members are. They come together. They decide their own rules. They decide their own savings amounts. Usually the loan size is about three times the amount that they've saved. Mm -hmm. Um, And the amount that they've been able to save together allows multiple members in the group to take out a little bit of credit so that they could invest in some of their livelihood activities. What would you say has been some of the most inspiring women's savings groups that you've seen? And why do you think these particular groups have been successful? What What's the secret sauce to this? Yeah, so I, I pride myself in having visited. I've, well, first of all, I've lived and worked um, across West Africa and East Africa and visited over 16 African countries where I have had in-depth experience visiting over 500 savings groups. So I've been to very rural, remote communities, and I I pride myself in having journeyed far and wide to see women in different contexts. What I've seen across various groups definitely is the agency. The transformation in women's ability to speak up in her community, within her household, to start to have decision-making power over household finances that concern her children or even dietary, um, nutritional uh, aspects within the house. I've also seen stories where groups have electrified villages, where they've done work, where they've purchased generators and they figured out a system to electrify their village. I've also seen women start to run for political office and get elected. So I've seen the broad spectrum of women really being transformed, starting to use their voice, starting to understand their potential and the respect that they receive from various community members as well as their household members. You know, this isn't the first time that we've mentioned women's savings groups on the show. And while we know they, they really are great ways to help women build modest assets, There are some that criticize how well they really function in the long run. A lot of women participants also get something called group fatigue at some point. Tell us a little bit about what you think the biggest challenges are facing the women's savings group model. I think, you know, as I started off, women traditionally find themselves in collectives within the communities that they reside. As women progress within a group, some of them are able to expand and grow their livelihood gains. And with that, they have bigger needs that their group may not satisfy, but they want to remain in those groups for that social cohesion, for that bond that they've had with the other women members in that group for years. So sometimes I think we just see that women outgrow their groups because they just need different financial resources in order to expand and continue to grow. So it's about how can different types of groups meet those needs? How can women access markets? How can women start to access the formal systems so that they can meet some of those needs? You know, you mentioned how the cooperatives just sort of fit into African culture and make sense. But you also note that underrepresented in the cooperative movement 
really are women, not just in Africa, but worldwide. Why do you think this particular group is a bit of an outlier? And why do you think the comparative model skews more male, even in Africa? So I think the growth of the cooperative movement across many African countries has largely been led by the public sector, the public sector really driving formalization of collectives through what we we see as as cooperatives mainly. And with that, for the longest time, men have been more included in national programs, in policies that really target um, the activities that males tend to lead on, whether it's livelihood activities or financial activities. So with that, naturally, you're going to have more male participation in cooperatives. Also, when we look at the barriers to actual registration. This also touches on some policies and laws where males in most countries have rights to access identification before women, or there's barriers and normative aspects that women face preventing them from actually getting IDs. So cooperatives are formal structures to which you register in a local office. And so you need certain documentation in order to do that registration. And women have tended not to have that, or women needed to have a male signatory in order to do certain aspects. So now that things are changing in some countries, now that we're seeing more legislation that's trying to get identification to all citizens, I think this is changing the landscape. And and that's why we're seeing more women being able to step up as leaders in cooperatives and register a female-only or female-strong cooperatives. At the foundation, you also take a look at, are there any new models for financial inclusion? Can you give me an example of some of the other things you're looking at? Yes. So we are looking at how you can reach women to um, not only skill them through a digital application, but also match them with an employer. And this is mainly in urban and peri-urban contexts, as you can imagine. But this is also a way of bridging women's uh, ability to access new markets. So this could very well work in rural communities as well. So digital platforms are another way of looking at aggregating women and reaching women in, in in new ways. I want to also pivot to what I'm absolutely fascinated by is this entire shea nut industry, which is women dominated. A majority actually of the shea nuts exported from Africa are actually sold as raw nuts. And then they're taken and transported to industrial processing plants abroad. So what that means in the big picture is these women producers actually make a lot less. They're largely selling the nuts rather than the processed product, which goes for way more higher prices. So this processing plant that was mentioned in Oyo State seems like a big game changer, but it also sounds like a bit of a one-off, an outlier, because Coca-Cola sponsored it. Sibyl, what do you think is needed to build more processing facilities like these? Is that the answer? I definitely think that's the answer. It's the private sector needs to engage with the markets to which that they are sourcing their goods and look at new ways for them to actually engage with um, the producers and ways that are very traditional, very much endemic to the areas that they're sourcing their goods. I think this is very much a model that needs to be kind of scaled up and talked about more because it is looking at how they can partner with communities in the way that they traditionally work and meeting women where they are, given the barriers that they face. 
we know that a lot of work needs to be done around affordability to financial services, accessibility to knowledge, um, tools, digital aspects, but that's going to take time to change. So if we're waiting for that infrastructure to kind of be in place, then we're missing the ability to interact with these communities and really source products right uh, from those communities and really help empower those members. I do think a lot of what we are working on at the foundation is trying to increase women's incomes. So when you look at a traditional producer of any crop, a smallholder farmer, she will typically make anywhere between $25 and $30 a month. Rightly, as you pointed out, whatever she has produced will be extracted from her community. She'll sell it, but then it'll be processed and and value would be added to that product elsewhere. And they'll be able to get a higher value, a higher profit from that raw material because it's processed or transformed elsewhere. So a lot of what we're trying to do at the foundation is to raise women's incomes by getting them into the higher value chains. Even if this were to take off and the Shea Nut exports improve significantly for women, there's also the potential that men would want to assert more control of the profits. How do you recommend preventing that kind of outcome? That is a very good question because that is definitely one of the reasons why we see a lot of nano and micro women entrepreneurs remain at those levels. They're afraid as they grow, there's a male in their their family that will start to take over the business. You hear men saying, oh, the business is too big for you now. You're not going to be able to manage it let me take it over for you or let me do the finances. You know, the calculations will start to get above your level. So let me try and manage it for you. Or, you know, you are a smallholder farmer, you help on the land. Let me manage the market aspects. Let me manage the the contracting aspects with some of the other actors. You don't know how to engage in negotiations. I mean, it's a whole range of things that men sort of put on women without even seeing women in action and just assuming that they cannot do it. Or it's a way to just capture the ability to garner the incomes. And knowing that it's it's going somewhere, that it's increasing in size and increasing in profit, being able to be able to just get in there and take it over. You know, Sibyl, doing this podcast as a journalist turned entrepreneur, I've learned so much from women in developing countries. What do you think that entrepreneurs in the West can learn from what you've seen taking shape in countries across the world. Yeah, I was recently traveling with Melinda this past summer and we went to Senegal and met with a number of women entrepreneurs. And one of the things that struck me was some of the challenges that women face in Senegal in accessing capital, you know, going to a financial institution, demonstrating all of their audit records, their balance sheets, all of their financial information, and still getting refused. I think this is one of the things that I saw Melinda just turn to these women and say, you know, I've gotten refused too. And it's just so hard to comprehend Melinda um, Gates how has some refused. <laughs> This is, wait, this is hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. For business plans, I don't, I'm not sure about the financial resources <laughs> aspect for the, That's for the ideas and the business plans. Yeah. Um, and so, 
you know, I think this is a phenomenon that we're seeing around the world, that women aren't taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always some sort of excuse that's given. Your strategy is not solid enough. Your business is too small. You can't have a loan of this amount or your business is too big. What you're asking for is too little. You need to have uh, more collateral or you need to demonstrate that you have more clients. So y- you see these doors shutting on various ways. And I think that that is it's, it's a phenomenon that happens in the Western world. It happens on the African continent. It happens in South Asia as well, where women are just refused for various reasons. And I think this is something that women, you know, face all over. If there was one thing that you could do to economically empower women that could be a big game changer, what do you think that might be? That's a really good question. You know, you asked me earlier about savings groups and and the transformation that I see in women. When women join a group, their whole disposition changes. After they are managing their money, they're taking out loans, they're repaying the loans, they're gaining uh, greater respect in their community, in their households with their spouses, you see a transformation in the way that they speak to other women as well as others in their community. So I really believe in the power of financial inclusion to enable a woman to start to unlock some of the things that are challenging her in her life. So I, I do think there is this power within harnessing and accessing finances that enable women to really start to transform. That must be so fulfilling to literally see on their faces the transformation when they're economically empowered. It is. And when I visit women in rural communities, it's almost as if they've received a gift and the gift was their own resources. It was their own savings. It was their own loan that they repaid. So it's it's definitely a tremendous outcome and change. You just heard from Sibyl Shidiak, a senior program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In developing countries where women-led investments are rare, this Shea Nut Butter factory became a real game changer for the women and their community. It started when one woman created an NGO to better support women Shea Nut producers. This included training them to collect higher quality Shea Nuts and helping them form cooperatives and savings groups. And then a real game changer happened. A grant from the Coca-Cola Foundation enabled the women to make a pure product by using real stainless steel equipment and adding a water treatment plant. That led to creating a higher end shea butter product, which allowed them to increase their price and ultimately their profits. These female entrepreneurs believe it's an investment model that should be replicated throughout Nigeria. Shea butter work is labor intensive. It isn't easy. So many women are often stuck in positions with zero support systems, which brings us to our episode for next week. What if you're in a line of work that's inherently isolating, like domestic work, and in a foreign country without the support of your local community? I was working for 18 hours, woke up at 6 and sleep at 12 midnight. They took my passport, they take everything. Personally, I survived the death two times. Next week on the show, seeking justice for migrant domestic workers facing abuse abroad. I'm Rena Ninen, and you've been listening to the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, 
Laura Rosbrow Tallum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Special thanks to Nellie Kalu, who reported for this episode. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Maria Jimena Aragon, Claudia Tady, and Dan Efron. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. Thanks so much. We'll be back in your feed next week. Thank you.